The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. Luke, chapter 21. We're beginning our Advent series this morning in Luke 21, verses 25 through 36. And as we uh, find that, Luke 21, let me just say how thankful I am to have extra worship leaders up here this morning. Wasn't it great to have a choir lead us in worship? You know, when the Bible talks about the end uh, and, and these pictures we get, there's always a choir present leading God's people to worship King Jesus. And that is something that we're privileged to have this year with, with our choir uh, here at Ashland, our Advent choir. And let me say further how thankful I am that we get to sing these songs that have been sung throughout history. There's something special about that. We sing these hymns that have, that have withstood time, that have been passed down from generation to generation through hundreds of years in the church. These hymns have rallied God's people to worship the risen Christ. What a privilege and a joy that is. We are connected generationally through God's Spirit when we sing these songs. But this morning, we're going to look at, in Luke 21, verses 25 through 36. I'm going to read the whole passage. And so I want to ask you now to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect word. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we ask You in these moments to speak to us, and we ask that request, Lord, knowing that You've already promised You would. 
Lord, you have tied your name to your word and you say that you accomplish. And we know because we've looked in history and we see how through your word you have accomplished so many things, Lord. You have created this very earth, this whole entire universe by the power of your word. And it is your word that brings hearts that are dead in their trespasses and sins to life. And it is your word that awakens hope, produces joy, cultivates love in your people. It is through your word, the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, we ask now that through your word, you would make us a people who wait and that you would teach us how to wait faithfully for the second coming, the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, how many of you have noticed that Christmas keeps getting earlier and earlier and earlier? This has a name. It's called Christmas Creep. And I know that some of you think that it's driven explicitly by nostalgia and just people with good cheer in their hearts who just want to celebrate Christmas year-round. But that's not the case. I'm just going to speak bluntly for all of you who decorate your houses before the time appropriate. It's really fueled by Walmart and Lowe's and their desire to make money earlier and make more of it. Now, I'll be completely honest with you. I don't really have a dog in the fight. I have my preferences, as you can tell. I'm on the keep Christmas where it's supposed to be team. But Wherever you stand in this debate, and by the way, I know some very passionate people, even in this church, who are on the other side of this debate. And if you want to debate this with me at another time, we can do that, but I'm not going to do that here. I don't bring it up to make any kind of grand theological point. I'm not saying if you decorate your house for Christmas before Thanksgiving, you're in sin, so please don't hear me saying that. I bring it up. Because I believe that it is very indicative of the contemporary mood, kind of where we're at as a society. I mean, it's a whole thing. I Googled it this week, celebrating Christmas early, and you would be amazed at the amount of articles that have been printed in magazines and newspapers and websites and blogs advocating for this. Here are just some of the first few titles that popped up. This is on the first Google page. Nine reasons why it's never too early for Christmas decorations. Have yourself an early little Christmas. That one was pretty clever. Seven reasons to start celebrating Christmas now. And here's my personal favorite. Christmas decorating earlier makes you happier, science says. Don't you love it when science weighs in? Who who is the science person anyway? Like, I love that last one because it just says it all in the headline. If it makes you happier, well, by all means, do it. (laughs) And that's the point right there. That's the point that I think captures so much about the age in which we live. If it makes you happier, that's kind of the end of the conversation. 
If it makes you happier, then the debate is closed. They don't try to define happiness when they write that article. Science doesn't tell us in this article what happiness is. But if you say it makes you happy, then by all means do it. And if you tell me that something makes you happier, I'm supposed to shut up. Because if something makes you happier, well, by all means, I don't need to be the one throwing a wet blanket on your happiness. I certainly don't want to be the one making you feel unhappy. I don't care. That was well-timed. <laughs> I personally, like I said earlier, don't care when you put up your Christmas tree. But I do want to challenge the assumption that the pathway to happiness is always the easiest, quickest route to gratifying your desires. I want to challenge that this morning. I want to challenge it from the Word of God. I want to argue this morning that for Christians, waiting is actually the key to your long-term flourishing. Waiting. Not gratifying. Not feeding your soul every little thing that your desires dream up but saying no to those desires, saying not now at times, waiting, waiting particularly for the promises of God to come about. Waiting is what Advent is all about. As I mentioned earlier, this is a time of year when the church intentionally looks back at Jesus' first arrival in preparation for his second arrival. That's what we're doing. In this Advent, we are going to spend four Sundays in the Gospel of Luke. And this is intentional because I think it is most explicit, this connection between waiting and faith. We see it in Luke's Gospel so clearly. Think about this question with me. What really is faith anyway? When Jesus says, I want my people to live by faith, I want my people, and Paul says, not to live by sight, but to live by faith, what is it that we're saying when we say that? What is it that Christians are supposed to be doing that is distinct from every other person in the world when we say, we are people who live by faith. We do not live the same way you do. It is this, to live by faith is to live our lives on the basis of what comes from God rather than on what we can grasp and control ourselves. That's what it means to live by faith. And in that definition, we see that faith requires waiting. To have faith is to be a person who waits. To be a person specifically who waits on God. It is God's timetable. We are people who pray after Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I want us to examine this passage in Luke 21 because I want us to answer the question, how do we wait? Okay, If we're supposed to be people who wait, Jesus, 
How do we do that? What does that look like? Teach us how to wait. And the first thing I want us to see in verses 25 through 28 is that waiting people interpret the world differently. Waiting people interpret the world differently. And you, you may be puzzled this morning. You may have come in this morning and thought, well, Luke 20, 21, that's not the birth of Jesus. Why are we back here in Luke 21? And I think the, the reason for that should have been clear by now is that we're not waiting for the birth of Jesus anymore. We're waiting for Jesus' second coming. And so we're going to start here where we are before we look back. And we're going to learn a lot from the people who waited for the first coming. In fact, they're going to teach us in the coming weeks a lot about how to wait for his second coming. But we're going to start with Jesus' direct words to, to where we are in history. This is what we're supposed to be waiting for. And before we jump into verse 25, I need to say a word about verses 5 through 24. We're not going to go through that. But all of this is part of the same discourse. This is right before Jesus' betrayal and arrest. And so he is kind of giving last words to his people. He is preparing them for what's to come. And in verses 5 through 24, Jesus foretells the fall of Jerusalem. In fact... We know from our history books that that has happened. What Jesus predicts in verses 5 through 24 has already happened. Jerusalem fell. The temple was destroyed. The Roman emperor Titus seized the city, brutalized the population, and destroyed the temple. Jesus had told them that was going to happen, and it happened. But all mixed up in this is this further kind of future forecasting. Jesus is saying, yes, something's about to happen in your lifetime, but we keep seeing clues that he's not just talking about that event. He means for that event to point us forward to something that's going to happen on a greater scale. Yes, the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, but God intends the whole earth to be his temple, and there's going to come a day where God's judgment visits this whole world too. That's the point that Jesus is making. And it can be confusing because there's times as you read this discourse where you're not sure. Is Jesus talking about Jerusalem or is he talking about the coming judgment at the end? And, and sometimes interpreters disagree on all of that. I would argue that that distinction is not that important because the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 was intended to be proof of the fall of everything else that Jesus is predicting. His judgment is coming. And those people alive during this time got to see a glimpse of it. But Jesus keeps telling us there's more coming down the road. And verse 25 is a turning point. And we can tell that when Jesus gets to verse 25, he's no longer talking about Jerusalem because of the language that he uses. Look with me there. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the wave. Do you see the language? This is cosmic. You're going to look up in the skies. You're going to see it in the seas. The nations, plural, are going to be perplexed. Verse 26, people 
fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. The, the, the original language here, what is coming on the entire world. This isn't just a local catastrophe. There are going to be signs in the heavens and it's going to show you, you are supposed to know that, that it's drawing near. The time is coming. In verses 25 through 27, Jesus tells us what is going to happen. And in verse 28, Jesus interprets it for us because it's kind of frightening. People fainting with fear and foreboding. Nations in distress. Why? Because of what's coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens, Jesus says, will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's Jesus. And here's his interpretation for us. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Your redemption is drawing near. Now when Jesus mentioned the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, everyone there would have known that he was referencing Daniel 7, where the Son of Man was prophesied to come, God's Messiah. He was going to come from heaven on clouds in great glory, and he was going to establish God's kingdom on this earth forever and ever. And so as soon as Jesus begins using that language, his original listeners would have immediately known what he's talking about. He is talking about a time in history where the God of this universe is going to redeem, but first he's going to judge. He's going to judge sin. He's going to finally forever redeem his people. He is going to institute his reign. He is going to make all things new. There is going to be a new heavens and a new earth. God's people were looking forward to this. Now what's interesting is the contrast in the passage. There's two different reactions. The nations are in distress. They're in perplexity in verse 25. That's a word for confusion. Verse 26, people fainting with fear and with foreboding. And we don't really know what these signs are. You can guess if you'd like. It just says signs. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, the distress of nations in perplexity. What are these signs? Is it going to be climate related? Are we talking about natural disasters and earthquakes and hurricanes? Tornadoes? Volcanoes erupting? Meteor showers? Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time on that. You see, that's what we want to know sometimes when we read this, don't we? Because we love to get our newspaper out and be like, man, is it happening? You know, we want to forecast and we want to know. But Jesus doesn't put emphasis there. Instead, what he puts emphasis on are the people responding to it. And what we see is that the same phenomenon that causes the entire world to panic causes God's people to rejoice in hope. The same thing. 
the whole world is in panic, but God's people, it says, are to lift up their heads, to straighten up. You ever had like your, your grandma say, straighten up your posture, boy? If you didn't have a grandma like that, you need one. People to tell you, straighten up. Straighten up. That's what you do when you're expecting something. You straighten up. You lift up your head. This word for language for lifting up your head is to, to be in hope. That your redemption, it says, is drawing near. Your salvation is coming. Everything that God has promised is coming to fruition. The day you've been waiting for. The day of longing. The day, church, that we sing about every week. You're going to rejoice. But you're going to look around, and guess what? There's not going to be a lot of rejoicing on TV. Fox News and CNN, they're, they're not going to have reports of celebration in the streets. It's going to be a small remnant of people rejoicing. It's only going to be the people who hope in Jesus rejoicing. You see, I think this is a really important distinction to make. Because I don't think that it is just a prophecy about the last day. I think that this is a teaching about our disposition and how our disposition is supposed to be every day leading up to that day. We do not interpret the news the same way the rest of the world does. And it's always been that way. Go back all the way, go back with me to Moses standing before Pharaoh, telling Pharaoh, there are plagues coming upon your people, Pharaoh, because you will not let God's people go. And Pharaoh was in panic. Pharaoh and the Egyptians were horrified. But what were God's people doing? God's people knew that the plagues were a sign of, yes, God's judgment upon their enemies, but of God's salvation for His people. Church, that's the way it's always been. Turn with me back to chapter 2 in Luke. I want to show you something. We're going to go back to the beginning of Luke a couple times this morning. But in chapter 2, verse 25, you've got the angel coming and promising Mary, that Jesus is going to be born. She's a virgin. You've got all of that happening. And we get to verse 25 of chapter 2, and we read this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now turn to verse 38, same chapter. And coming up at that very hour, she, Anna, the prophetess, began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, we have this community, this remnant of people who are waiting. They're rejoicing at the birth announcement of Jesus. Meanwhile, what is Herod doing? Herod is in panic. Because Herod knows 
that the coming of the king of the universe means the demise of his earthly kingdom. And that's the way it's always been, church. For us who trust in the promises of God, we believe the gospel. That is the most distinct thing about us. We are people who hope in Christ. We are people who believe in the good news. We are people who look at the cross and say, there is my salvation. We are people who are able to close our eyes and breathe our last breath knowing that we're going to wake up on the other side in glory. And that changes everything. That changes everything. We are people who know that yes, we are sinners, but we have a Savior who has died for our sins. We do not have to face the judgment for our sins because we have a Savior who said it is finished in our place. And so we don't look at the unfolding of history with fear and trepidation. We look at the unfolding of history with hope that God is accomplishing His purposes. That's what's happening. We know that history is moving toward a goal. God is bringing it all about. You want to know why I hate waiting so much? Every single week, I pick up my kids from school in Louisville, and every single week, I get my map app out on my phone, and I put home, not because I don't know how to get home. Unlike Joe Abdelgany, who still needs directions to get home, I, I can get there. I do it because I don't want to get stuck in traffic on I-71. Any of you been there? You know what happens almost every single week? I get stuck in traffic anyway. And I hate it. I've been trying to drink a lot of water, and I have a very small bladder. And that's one of the reasons I hate it, is because usually, like, the distance from the kids' school to home is about how long I can hold it. And so here I am, stuck on the interstate. I'm looking at those porta potties that the construction workers use, and I'm like thinking, I might put this thing in park and go over there. But, but in all seriousness, I'm looking for any way to escape this. I hate being stuck in traffic. I really do. I look for U-turns. One time we were taking Josiah to a baseball tournament, Nikki and Josiah and I, and we got stuck in traffic, and I'm, I'm just going to be honest. I went up the on-ramp to get out of it. Just turn around, U-turn, and just went up the on-ramp over in the emergency lane so that we wouldn't be stuck in traffic anymore. I know some of you are appalled by that. I would rather go a different way, even if it took longer to avoid being stuck in traffic. And the reason why, listen to me, the reason why we don't like waiting is because waiting reminds us that we're not in control. Waiting reminds us that we're not in control, and we don't like not being in control, church. We don't like that. That's not 
a very comfortable feeling. But here's the game changer. Okay, This is what changes it. What should change it for us. God's promises turn our lack of control into good news. Because God's promises tell us that even though we're not in control, there is one who knows better who is in control. You see, this is where everything changes for us. When you look at the world, you have two choices you can make. The first one is you can believe that history is in the hands of humanity alone. That this world is just going to be what we make of it. And I can let you know right now that that story is not ending well. We're not doing a very good job in our supposed control of history, are we? There are wars and rumors of wars. There is hatred and division. There is all kinds of evil under the sun. If history is strictly in the hands of humanity alone, church, we are in bad shape. Or, we look to the promises of God and we are reminded that history is God writing the story and bringing it to salvation for His people. That God is accomplishing His will. And so even when catastrophe hits, we can rejoice. We can know that God is going to help us understand what He's doing. Church, our lives should not be characterized by the same fear and paranoia that so characterizes our world. We see this often in politics, and I shudder to say that too often in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we interpret the world the same exact way the world does. We are not the same kind of people, not because there's anything more righteous in us. We are not the same kind of people because we have been forgiven and saved by the gospel. We have a different hope. We don't look at everything that's going on with the same despair and hopelessness as everyone around us. But here's the second thing I want us to see in verses 29 through 33. Waiting people survive by God's words. Waiting people survive by God's words. Look at verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So there's the parable, and this is simple. If you walked outside right now and looked up at the trees and you looked at the leaves, you would go, it must be winter. Or fall must have just completed. Or we're at the end of fall because there are no leaves left. But if you walked out in the spring, those leaves would look different. If you walked out in the summer, they would look different. You can tell what time we're living in by looking at the trees. That's all Jesus is saying. And he's saying, in the same way, when you see these things beginning to take place, church, you need to know what time you're living in. You need to know that the end is near. 
the Son of Man is about to come back. And, and remember I told you earlier that he flips back and forth between talking about the very end and talking about the fall of Jerusalem in the year AD 70. And here in verse 32, he goes back to that. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. He's looking at the people around him, and he's saying, you are going to begin to see this happening in your lifetime. And then he says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. How sure can we be, church, that what Jesus says is going to happen is indeed going to happen? Jesus says, my words, what I've promised you, this is more permanent than heaven and earth itself. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the words of Jesus are more permanent than the existence of the very ground you're standing on. I just want to remind you that the word of Jesus is eternal. This is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That this universe that we look at and think it's so permanent, this universe was produced by the word of Jesus. Heaven and earth may fall, but the word of Christ will stand forever. Church, believing this is the key to waiting faithfully as God's people. We wait by looking to His word. We get through these tough times. We get through the anxieties of our own soul. We make it through the bad news by reminding ourselves perpetually of the good news. We become people who live by God's Word. We wake up and we open God's Word. We, we look forward to Sunday so that we can celebrate and listen to God's Word together. We sing God's Word. We pray God's Word. We become people of the Word. And it is only when we are dependent upon the Word of Christ that we will be able to wait the way Jesus calls us to. Man, we can't live on bread alone. We live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Word of God, that is our meat. That is our drink. You know, I'm, I'm a person who's really bad at breaking my routine. You know, if you say to me, hey, Pastor Casey, can you meet next week? And I say, yes, I'll meet you, you know, Tuesday afternoon, 3 o'clock, coffee shop. If I don't like get my phone out right then and put it on my calendar, you need to say, you need to put it on your calendar right now. Just tell me to do that, please. It helps me. Because I like routine, right? And meeting at 3 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon is not part of my weekly routine. <laughs> so if I don't write it down, if I don't get my phone out and put it in my calendar, boom, at that time, that's what I'm going to do. I have forgotten these things before. I have. So what do you do to break your routine? You interrupt it. You set reminders, right? 
That's what I do when I get out my Google Calendar and I hit that button and I, I enter in all the details about the meeting. This is going, this is me planning to interrupt my normal routine. I'm, maybe normally I'm, I'm studying at this time or I'm visiting at this time, but this week I'm meeting this person at this time. I just interrupted my routine by doing that. Church, the routine of our age is despair and hand-wringing, and focusing on negativity, and all of the bad news going on in the universe. That is the air in which we live. That is what we breathe. We live in an anxious age. So how do you break the routine of this interpretation of the world that is ultimately godless. You break the routine by setting interruptions of what is true. We make sure that God's Word is speaking loudly into our lives. We plan to hear from God. What does such a life look like? Well, turn back with me to Luke chapter 1. Verses 35 through 38. And Mary said to the angel, this is verse 34, How will this be since I am a virgin? Mary was just told that she is going to conceive and she is going to bear a son and she is going to call his name Jesus. And she asks a very natural question. How is this going to be? I'm still a virgin. I'm unmarried. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Church, what is she doing? She's saying, God, whatever you will, let it be done in my life. She's saying, here is my body. Here is my soul. Here is my person. Do with me whatever you want to do. She's saying, your word is better than my desires for my own life. Your will is perfect. Mine is not. Church, this is what it looks like to live by faith. Faithful waiting is open-handed waiting. Faithful waiting is the end of insisting on our own way. Faithful waiting is we quit saying to God, I will do this if you do this. Faithful waiting is when we quit 
expecting God to fulfill all of our wishes and dreams. God is not the genie that fulfills all of our dreams that we have for our lives. And Mary is beginning to realize that. I mean, put yourself in her shoes. She is a young woman. Her whole life is ahead of her. And she is about to be marked with a physical sign to everybody around her of shame and immorality and that she's done something wrong. And her response is, God, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. This is what faith looks like. This is what waiting looks like. Waiting on God means that we need to get rid of those dreams that we hold so tightly to. Those very specific expectations about our future. The control that we cling so tightly to. And all of that is replaced by full submission. I want to do Your will, Lord. Mary's trust in God's Word frees her to let go of all of that and open, listen, and open her life to the new and better things that God is planning to do for her. Because that's the truth, church. Every time we sacrifice our dreams and our control and say, God, I want to submit to you, every time we are exchanging something worse for something better. God is doing something better. But when we insist on our own expectations, we close ourselves to the better thing. It is God's Word that frees us, that allows us to be open and ready for God's future, which is always better. We are looking to God's Word, and we are learning from His Word how to submit our hearts to Him in faith. And it is there that God writes the story that is always more beautiful than the one we would have written. I have so many illustrations of this. I, honestly, I don't even have time to, to... I could share this in so many different ways. I, I've, to, I've shared with you before that Nikki and I struggled early in our marriage. And I remember a time where Nikki told me, she said, I, I, sometimes I think that you don't love me, you just love your, your dream of what you want me to be. <laughs> And she was right. I didn't think she was right that day. I kind of laughed at her. But thankfully, God showed me that I had a dream that I was holding up and I was expecting her to fulfill it. And over time, by the grace of God, He's taught me to put that dream to death because our marriage is better than anything I could have ever expected. And I say that about so many things. Ministry in this church. I can't tell you how many times the staff sits around and we, and we go, we don't have any idea what God's about to do. And then all of a sudden, God shows up and boom, it just blows us away. Because if it were all about us, if the church and ministry was just the sum of our calculations, this would be a puny, pathetic lot of people. But God is doing something great. You know, Joe said the other day in staff meeting, 
Do you remember when we first started, we looked around Oldham County, and we thought, man, God called us to plant a church in a really white community. And we were like, but we want a diverse church. But, you know, maybe we're limited by the diversity of our community. And so maybe we, we won't ever be a diverse church. And we're just going to have to live with that. And you know what God's been doing lately? He's been bringing people from the continent of Africa to be members of this church. That's what God is doing. Because this is bigger than our dreams. This is what God is doing. And when we submit ourselves to God, church, the future, the future is so much better. Let God write your story. Let God write the story of your marriage. Let Him write your career. Let Him do it. Submit yourself to Him. Don't cling to your own dreams. Don't hold closed-fisted to your desires and say, no, I promise you'll regret that decision. God is doing it. We look to Him. We look to His Word. Here's the last thing. Verses 34 through 36. Waiting people don't wait passively. You see, I think that's the mistake that we make. Is you say, well, you say we're just supposed to be waiting. What does that mean? Do we just sit? And, and, and it sounds like a very passive thing. You know, usually when we wait, I'll, I'm going to get my phone out and distract myself. Check my emails for the 10th time in the last five minutes. We don't like to wait. But what Jesus shows us in verses 34 through 36 is that it's not passive. A wise man once said, a waiting person is someone who is present to the moment, who believes that this moment is the moment. And I think that's in line with what Jesus is saying to us here. How do we remain present to every moment? Well, Jesus first in verse 34 tells us what not to do. He says, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. When Jesus talks about dissipation and drunkenness, he is talking about a life of unbridled indulgence. A life where we just feed our appetites constantly, whatever we want in any moment, where we never say no. That characterizes our age that we live in, right? Jesus says, watch yourself. Don't give in to that spirit. But then he turns to another spirit that we're often tempted to give in to. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. The second thing, with the cares of this life. This is Jesus talking about the daily anxieties that often paralyze us and distract us. This is Jesus talking about just the normal routine things in life that we so often worry so much about. And Jesus says, it is possible for you to get so bogged down with the cares of your daily life that you are completely distracted from seeing me in my glory. And Jesus doesn't want us to live that way. Listen to me, church. Jesus doesn't want His people to live anxiously. 
He wants us to see Him and His promises and to live in joy and hope and grateful expectation. Both approaches, whether it's the unbridled indulgence or the giving in to our daily anxieties, both of those approaches to life obscure the glory of Jesus and will cause us to be weighed down and not ready for Him and His return. Verse 35 is a quick reminder, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, meaning his return. Verse 36, this is where he turns to what to do. So in verse 34, he says, don't do this. In verse 36, he says, do this, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus says, stay awake, watch. You remember how we began this year? How we went through the whole series on watchfulness, on on staying awake, wakefulness? This is us returning to that here at year's end. Because that call isn't just something we do in January and February. This is supposed to mark our lives. We are supposed to be on guard, alert, calibrated to the Word of God, understanding what's going on around us. And how do we do that? Jesus tells us by praying. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. Depending upon God, pray. prayer is the posture of watchfulness, of waiting, of being awake. Nowhere in this passage is the focus on forecasting and predicting. Jesus always discourages that. He says no one will know the day or the hour. All of the emphasis is on praying. Because it is in prayer that we cast our gaze on the one who's ultimately in control. It is through prayer that we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is through prayer that we learn to submit our hearts to God and his word. Church, let's be people who are waiting, people who are ready. He's coming back. Let's be ready for him. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we're reminded today of so many precious promises from your word. And God, we are reminded of the gospel. We're reminded of your love for us. We're reminded that You have caused the entire pathway of history to be moving towards our ultimate good and salvation and also Your glory. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that You would make us people who are faithful and waiting. I pray that every person in this room would be able to say with Mary, We are your servant, Lord. Let it be done to us according to your word. God, I pray that we would take great delight in that. That we would live by that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.